The Insulone Podcast is brought to you by Cybionics, an emerging CGM brand that focuses on simplifying how individuals aged 18 and above monitor and control their blood sugar levels. Upon becoming available on the market, the Cybionics GS1 CGM has helped users worldwide navigate the complexities of diabetes management with more confidence and peace of mind. Thanks to Cybionics, now more people are able to view and share their real-time glucose data, receive customizable glucose alarms, and generate full AGP reports, all directly from an intuitive Cybionics app, empowering them with the necessary information to make better decisions about their health. Cybionics combines data accuracy and comfort of wear, which is important to us all, with a feature-rich app. The 14-day scanning-free and calibration-free Cybionics GS1 CGM aims to deliver reliable, seamless diabetes management experiences. For more, check out CybionicsCGM.com. This is the Insulone Podcast, where I, own Costello, try to redefine diabetes. In this week's episode, I'm a big lover of Mexican food and having a margarita. And for a while, that would always send me to the moon. And then I kind of challenged myself to see like, okay, well, instead of being, you know, 300 for three hours after this meal, let's see if I can bring that down a little bit. But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulone podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes, please contact a medical professional. Now, let's get stuck into this episode. How's it going? And welcome back to the Insulon Podcast. I hope you are very well. I hope the week is treating you well also. And today we have another fantastic guest. And I always love introducing you to these guest episodes because you get a whole new perspective, a whole new set of insights and experience from somebody else living with type 1 diabetes. So today, my guest is Mary Anderson. She is a fifth grade teacher and was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 21. So close enough to when I was diagnosed, as I'm sure you probably know, I was diagnosed when I was 19. But since then, Mary has grown a large social media following where she shares her insights, her experiences, her tips, to help others live a healthy and happy life with the condition, some of which she shares on this episode today. So keep an ear out for those. Also throughout this episode, myself and Mary touch on the reality of insulin access in the US specifically, because obviously that's where Mary is from, compared to Ireland based off my experience. And we highlight the cost difference between the two countries from our own experiences and essentially different scenarios that we have been in where we needed insulin and where one was relatively easy, the other was quite difficult. And these types of insights and experiences that we get specifically from people in the States, I always feel like they're a shock or it is a shock to a lot of the listeners that we have, and it might be a shock to you today, if you come from a place where you can just walk into a pharmacy and get your insulin, no questions asked. So it's always a very depressing 
insight to say the very least but i really enjoyed this episode you will enjoy it too and i will stop talking enjoy it and i'll speak to you soon take it easy i know this is a very random start but i'm currently not using a sensor because i it, my prescription had run out I, i'm waiting for a new one so i'm finger pricking back to the good old days i've, I've spent nine plus years just finger pricking before a cgm and i always look at it mary as like a time where i can kind of be more in tune with my body in terms of like how do highs feel how do lows feel and i know you use a g6 and a pump do you feel as if you have almost kind of become desensitized to how your body feels with the tech or do you still feel just as in tune oh man um i feel like i when i'm in between dexcom sessions i in my brain i'm like i'm not diabetic for the next two hours because i don't see my blood sugar so i just kind of ignore it um which is not like what what you should do but it's just you know two hours of peace um but i feel like I don't feel my lows as much when I have my Dexcom and it's like, Oh, you're 75 and dropping. It's like, Oh yeah, I feel that. Sure. I, that makes sense. And I'll go get something, but without it, all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I am sweaty and so shaky. Like it takes me forever. And I do a finger prick and I'm in the fifties and it, I had no idea until all of a sudden it's like urgently low. So I feel like, the Dexcom has made it. I've kind of gotten lazy. I feel like I'm not as in touch with my highs and lows, especially highs. I feel like that takes me a while to notice those. Do you kind of get to a place where you have to be a certain height for you to feel it? I think, yeah, I feel like it's not until upper 200s really is when I start to feel like I get really nauseous. That's my biggest mm. symptom that I feel when I start getting high. When I start feeling nauseous, then I'm like, I think I need to prick my finger. You know, what I haven't looked at my Dexcom in a while or I'm teaching and my high alarm is off. I'm like, what is my blood sugar right now? Because I don't feel great. And it's normally kind of way later. And I'm like, oh, I wish I caught that a little earlier. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's already up at that height where it's like stubbornly high and just really difficult to get back down. Have yeah. you, Mary? I know you were diagnosed at twenty one. Did you ever go through? And I know I'm only kind of asking you this because I'm in the thick of just using a finger prick again. Have you ever gone through an extended period of time only finger pricking, or were you kind of straight onto sensors and CGMs and pumps? I jumped right in. So I was diagnosed in December and by, I think, March, I was on a Dexcom. So I really only did like three months, um, just finger pricks. I went right in. And then since then, I've only been off of Dexcom for like maybe a day at most. And do you feel like that day is just kind of like a, a bit of a mental break, as you said? Yes, a huge one because I've dealt with my issues with Dexcom, like skin irritation. I get horrible rashes from the Dexcom adhesive and I figured out my way to work around it now. But when it first started, it was so painful and it was making me so burnt out. And it was those moments mm -hmm. when I didn't have my sensor on. It was just, 
oh, like I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to think about my skin and how it's reacting and hurting. And so, yeah. How do you go about kind of like addressing that that rash issue? Because for me, I was on I was on the G six for like I think a couple of years before then getting the G seven when it came out, and G six never had any issues with it at all. Loved it, but the G seven. I have a very, I was going to say love-hate, but mostly hate relationship. And it, it comes from the fact that I, I now get a really strong reaction to the G7. So they must have like changed the adhesive or whatever it might be. But it, it's almost like it's just adding on another thing to managing your diabetes. So how have you approached that? Like, is there something specifically that you do to help the, the skin irritation? Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm so nervous for the G7 because I don't know. I've heard mixed reviews. Some people have reactions. Some people don't. Same with the G6. So I'm like mm. nervous about how my body will be when I hopefully try it soon. Um, but with the G6, I have to use these bandages that are meant for your ankles to stop blisters from shoes, like on the back of your ankles. Um, they're called Compede bandages. And they're little Dexcom shape. They're little oval bandages that are meant for the back of your ankles when you're wearing shoes, but they, I just hole punch it, stick it on the Dexcom sensor and slap it on and it saves my skin. So that goes in between. So just, so I'm clear on it. That goes in between your skin and the Dexcom. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. So I peel off okay, the little adhesives okay, okay. on the Dexcom and then I put that on and then it has its own adhesive backing. I peel off and then, apply the sensor so a relatively simple solution that i was obviously not clever enough to come to basically (laughs) i know the g7 applicator is different so i don't know how because it's i think more like the libre applicator right yeah true there's surely there's something out there that it solves that specific issue um but it could be mary the flip side for you where you get a rash with the G6, but you don't with the G7 because I didn't with the G6, but I do with the G7. So as you say, fingers crossed, <laughs> fingers I'm, crossed. I'm holding on to that hope. <laughs> 100%. It's the little things. But Mary, like I said to you right. before we press record, I'm always fascinated to understand a bit more about like how somebody deals initially with their diabetes and particularly around a similar age when I was diagnosed. So I was diagnosed when I was 19, obviously that time and most people's lives, you, you're finishing school or going to college or changing social scenes or changing social groups, whatever it might be. You were 21. How did you find that overall experience? Uh, traumatizing. <laughs> um, I was and my senior year of college. And it was my fall semester that led up to my diagnosis because I was diagnosed in December. So that fall semester before I was diagnosed was hands down the most stressful semester. Like my university, it was known in their teaching program that fall semester of your senior year is the hardest semester in the program. So I had already had a lot of stress going on. And then I had all my symptoms that I didn't know were diabetes uh, start to show themselves and it got worse and worse. And I was losing all this weight. And I was like, 
I, I don't know what's happening, but it's just stress. And so then I fast forward to winter break and I am still feeling awful, still feeling worse. So I finally went to my primary care doctor and he ran all these tests and they pricked my finger and the nurse was like, Oh, it's four thirty-seven. And my doctor just looked at me and was like, you're a type one diabetic. And then he pointed to the nurse was like, can you go get the insulin? She was like, sure. And she ran out and they were like, here's how to give yourself your insulin shot. So we're going to do a little tutorial and then you're going to get it. And we already made you an appointment for an endocrinologist next week. So in the meantime, just take this much insulin with your meals and this amount for your long acting in the morning. And um, just your endocrinologist will fill you in on the rest. And I was like, what just happened? Like, it was such a whirlwind. Like, I think I blacked out for part of it because I was just like, wait, 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 no, I'm not diabetic. Like, there's no way this is happening. And so it was just a shock. And I thankfully had a friend who was type one, Beth, her Instagram's like Beth Abedes, and we were college roommates. And so I immediately called her. I was like, you got to tell me everything because they just, I feel like threw me to the wolves and I had no guidance really. So there was no almost, there never really is an easing in process, but it was just kind of like, I'm going to reassure myself that there's nothing wrong with me. It's just essentially stress. And then boom, 400, you're diabetic. Yeah. And then no nurse teaching me like, oh, this is what type one diabetes is. And this is like the things you need to look for. No one taught me about ketones. I didn't know about ketones until like two months into my diagnosis when I saw someone talking about it on Instagram. And I was like, wait, what is this? Like, I feel like no one sat down with me and kind of explained all the ins and outs. And it was just kind of, I had to discover all of those myself. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, like, you didn't realize until you went on to Instagram, because as, as, like, as funny as that can sound, like, to a certain extent, getting medical information from Instagram, one of the last guests that we had on, he was diagnosed when he was 30, but misdiagnosed as a type two. And then inevitably ended up on, as he says, like the, the diabetes diabetes side of TikTok and he was kind of posting about like his experience with type 2 and he didn't realize he was misdiagnosed as a type 2 until people in the comments were saying you're type 1 you're type 1 you're type 1 you're type 1 so he was under the impression that he was type 2 diabetic but in reality he was type 1 so he was taking metformin and hadn't yet I don't think he'd, he'd started taking insulin yet even though he was type 1 it's insane. That is crazy. Thankfully, my doctor knows my family medical history really well. Like since my grandmother was going to his practice and my siblings and cousins, like he knows a lot of our family and there's a lot of autoimmune diseases in my family. No other type 1 diabetes, but other mm. autoimmune things. So I think you no, know, he knew that. And so when I came in and my blood sugar was so high, he put two and two together and was thankfully able to be like, nope, it's type one. And then they did all the tests for the autoantibodies. And I had, I think, every single one that they look for. So it was no doubt that I was type one. <laughs> so presumably the doctor then was under the impression that it 
has a correlation to family history or this was related to other types of autoimmune diseases within your family, was it? Yeah, he figured because my sister has lupus, which is autoimmune, and my grandmother had it as well. And so he just figured with the streak of autoimmune diseases, he figured since type 1 is 2, that's probably what it is. So he mm. he knew. So I'm thankful for that because a misdiagnosis, I feel like, is just a whole nother level of stress. I can't even begin to understand. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so they check your blood sugar. It's over 400. They've confirmed almost immediately that you're type 1 diabetic. Between that moment and the endo appointment that was scheduled for a week later, like, what do you do? What's going through your head? What are you, how are you, how are you surviving? I had a lot of tears, um, a lot of texts to my friend to be like, so they want me to take 10 units of insulin with a small meal. And she was like, well, what's your insulin to carb ratio? And I was like, what is that? They didn't tell me about that. I don't, and I knew nothing, literally nothing. And they had me taking huge amounts of insulin with meals at that time. And I look back now and I'm like, how did I not crash immediately? Like they told me small meals, I think take eight units, medium, 10 units and a large meal, 12 units. And so small meal to me was breakfast was scrambled eggs and a piece of toast. And I'm taking eight units of insulin for that, which now is like, that would make me crash immediately. It's like, I don't know how I didn't have so many lows, but they called me every day or every other day to get a reading of all my blood sugars. I had to log them and they were like, all right, read them back since the last time we talked. And they would kind of lower my insulin settings, I guess, but it was tough. And then I was out of town two days later after my diagnosis. So my boyfriend at the time, his mom was getting married and it was three hours away from where I lived. And I was like, well, I'm going, like, I want to be there for his family and support them. I'm like, I'm just going to have to figure out my blood sugar and diabetes there. And I remember I finally got to the pharmacy to pick up my meter and my finger poker that day, like on my way to go. So I picked it up at the pharmacy drove three hours and then got to his house. And I was like, okay, I got to figure out how I am supposed to prick my finger to check my blood sugar. Cause I didn't have that for a while. And so I just was like, we're going to figure it out. I'm not going to stop my plans because of this. It's just going to have to wait. Cause I'm going to still live my life. Wow. And how did the wedding go in the end? <laughs> um, it was rough. I remember having to take pictures of, everyone and my eyesight from my high blood sugars like my eyes were so blurry my eyesight was so blurry and I remember trying to take pictures on someone's phone and I could not see what I was taking a picture of I remember looking at the phone and being like I am pulling it closer to my face farther away and I it's so blurry and I wear contacts anyways I have horrible vision but I was like this is so different like have my eyes changed so quickly like what is going on I remember that just freaking me out. And then it went away. It's my blood sugar came down. But yeah. I just remember that specifically being so weird to me. How long did it take to come back down in, in terms of, or how long did it take for you to, your vision to go back to how it normally is? Um, I think it was only a couple of days. Like it didn't take too long. Um, 
And then I remember, I don't, I forget the day of the week that I was diagnosed. I think it was like maybe a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And then I remember Sunday after my diagnosis, I was going to church and I remember getting ready for church. And that's when I had my very first low blood sugar. Cause all of a sudden I was really shaky and I was like, I need to prick my finger. And I was like 72 and I was panicking. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh, it's low. Okay. It's happening. This is my first low blood sugar. What am I supposed to do? Let me go get juice. I was so nervous. So it took a while for me, for my blood sugar to finally go low after my diagnosis. Even with taking eight, 10 or 12 units, <laughs> that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's so weird for me to think about it now. I'm like, I don't know what my body was going through at that time, but it was rough. Yeah. When you think back, Mary, to that whole experience, and if you were to pinpoint what you felt was most challenging at that time, what do you think it would be? And then to kind of bounce off that question, how do you feel that's changed over the years? Like if you're to compare what was the biggest challenge for you when you were first, let's say, introduced to diabetes, as opposed to what you feel now is most challenging. How has that changed if it has? Yeah, I remember my that first week, my biggest fear was how everyone in my life was going to respond and react to me coming out to be like, I have diabetes now. I remember being so scared of what other people were going to think and how they would, what they would say and how they would react to it, which thinking about it now, it's like I have this platform where I share about my diabetes with thousands of people every day. And so it's just funny that back then I was so scared of how people would interpret me being diagnosed with diabetes would be. And now it's like, this is my life. Like I'm embracing it and this is everything I do. And I kind of use that as my voice to uh, empower other people with diabetes and educate people about it. So it's just funny how my perspective has totally changed. Now I think the hardest part would be the finances and affording all my diabetes supplies because it is expensive. For anybody who doesn't know, and we I know we kind of touched on this when we were just chatting earlier, for anybody who has no idea about the reality of insulin access and the tech and supplies that we require in the US, like how would you describe it to them? Um, so insulin without insurance is like a couple hundred dollars for just one vial. Um, thankfully with my insurance, it's, um, about, I think $90 for a three month supply. And I'm very grateful for that. But if I didn't have insurance, it would be hundreds of dollars just for one vial, which would last me like a month. My biggest thing is like the CGM supplies and the insulin pump supplies because with my insurance, I have to spend a certain amount of money before they step in and start covering my supplies. So I have to spend, you know, almost $4,000 out of my own pocket on all my supplies before insurance is like, okay, we'll help you out. We'll, we'll pay for, you know, 50% of this, or we'll, you know, you just have to pay like $200 for your insulin pump supplies instead of $2,000. So it's, it's hard, especially in the beginning of the year before I hit that deductible, before I've spent my out-of-pocket max. Um, it's it, I have to save and I have my 
personal like health savings account that I dump money in to try to prepare myself for the beginning of every year. Cause that's always the hardest when it resets every year. So essentially you have to pay like a minimum four grand for them to in any way help you out. Yeah. Yeah. Not for my insulin. Thankfully that I, they will cover differently than my supplies, the, all the tech supplies basically. Um, so Dexcom tandem supplies, that's all I have to spend that four grand basically before they jump in. And how, how strict is that Mary? Like if, if you were to spend 3,999, is that like a cutoff point where they say, sorry, can't help you? I would still have to pay that dollar, that one extra dollar they would charge me for it. Okay. So let's say, and again, this comes from the fact that like we have loads of listeners who are in Ireland, the UK, other countries that essentially get it for free or it's taken care of majority wise. What if you were to not have insurance for anything, how much do you think it would cost you like per month or even per year? Um, my gut instinct tells me at least probably 20 grand, probably more. 20 grand. Probably. Yeah. I don't, I would not be on a Dexcom or have a pump if I did not have insurance. There's no way I would be able to afford it. That's insane. Yeah, I just got a new insulin pump because it's they go in warranties. Insurance says you have to pick one insulin pump for four years. After four years, you can either renew that insulin pump or switch to a different one. So I just hit that four-year mark earlier this year and had to renew my pump. And I got the receipt. And before insurance, the pump alone, I think, was $12,000 was on the receipt. But then with insurance, I only had to pay, you know, I actually got charged more and I had already hit that point where insurance was supposed to cover it. So they still charged me, but I got a refund thankfully. Cause I was like, Nope, insurance, you were, you paid for that. I need my money back, but it was $12,000 before insurance kicked in for just the pump, not even the supplies. That is insane. I'm not smiling because it's funny. I'm smiling because it's just pure shock. And it it even reminds me of a conversation that I had recently about, and I know you're not specifically talking about this pump, but we were having a conversation about a type of pump that's that can be manufactured in 60 seconds. And then it's potentially sold for 12,000. It's crazy. Wow. 60 seconds. 60 That's seconds. Crazy. Yeah, which is just nuts. What makes it more shocking and depressing, let's call it how it is, is the fact that when insulin was initially manufactured, like manually, the patent was sold for like $1. Yeah. Which is insane. And now and it's hundreds. Even in like the last 10, 20 years, we had somebody on before who does a lot of work within like type two diabetic communities. And 
she was saying how over the last decade, there's been like a, a significant percentage increase of the amount of amputations. And then it was directly related. We had kind of come to the conclusion that it was directly related to the fact that insulin prices were skyrocketing throughout that decade itself. So it's no surprise. Now, I know this was this was more specifically type 2, but over that last 10, 15 years, insulin prices had increased so much and almost parallel amputation percentages had increased vastly, rapidly. Wow. That's like... And then I think when I, Frederick Banting created insulin, he said when he sold his patent, patent that insulin doesn't belong to me, it belongs to the world. Hmm. But yet here we are and it just is not belonging to the world. It is no, in the hands of not. pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. <laughs> so I know, Mary, you're obviously a big advocate for people in the US particularly, specifically, having access to affordable insulin and ultimately more affordable tech. What can an average person do with this? Like, can an average person do anything to help with this sort of movement? That was part one of this episode. If you are listening to this on the day of the release, part two will be out tomorrow. But if you're listening on any other day, Part two is the next episode on our list.